0: You know, we we spend our lives preparing for many things, lots of things. Musicians they might spend hours a day preparing for a concert. An athlete will spend early mornings and late nights owning their skills in a particular sport. Entrepreneurs will spend hours in their fields learning how to be more efficient, how to be more productive. And almost everyone here has spent 13 years of their lives in school, maybe 4, 5, even 8 more years preparing for a career, 21 years sometimes, and that's entry level. It takes a lot longer to become proficient at whatever you're doing. We devote so much of our lives to preparation, especially when it comes to a career. It's a very important aspect of our humanity. It's, it's important. In the beginning, we're introduced to God. And the first thing that we learn about God is He is a God who works. He established it as a pattern for all people. Six days of labor, one day of rest. Your career, your work, it is far more important to your identity and even your humanity than you might even realize. It's one of the prime areas where you live out your faith. It's one of the ways you bear the image of God. It's how you provide for yourself and for your family, and it's one of the ways you fulfill the creation ordinance of taking dominion over the world. We must work. And so it's not unreasonable to spend so much time preparing for this important, defining feature of your identity. But your vocation, your calling... It's not the most important or life-shaping thing in your life. There is another that is undeniably greater. Any guess what that might be? It's marriage the family. The family is far more important than the career. I mean, how many people... How many people would trade their entire successful career for peace in the home? How many would trade all of those years of preparation, they would trade them away for a better family life? I mean, the family, and specifically marriage, is the most influential, the most demanding, and the most life-giving part of a person's life and yet how much time has been spent given in preparation for this almost zero right we're not we're not like horses a horse is born in the morning and running by noon it knows it by instinct we don't know much by instinct and yet marriage is treated just like that oh you'll know you'll know what to do when it happens when it comes along you'll know how to be a good husband or a good wife I mean, how many even in this room, how, how, how has someone ever sat down with you as a young man or a young woman and told you what marriage is supposed to look like, taught you how to be a husband or how to be a wife, trained you in these things? It's the most important relationship we enter into in this life, and at best, at best, you hear a sermon series or read a book about it couple of hours of counseling happens, and that usually doesn't take place until after the marriage and rocky waters have been run into. But what would it look like if a tenth of the time spent preparing for a career was spent preparing to be a husband or a wife or a mother or a father? I think things would look very differently in our world today, wouldn't they? Well, there's no possible way of looking at everything about marriage and the family, but I would like to look at some verses starting in Genesis 2, 18 through 26, and, uh, and some of the vows from the traditional Christian ceremony that espouse biblical principles in marriage, sorry, 18 through 25 just want to take this morning to establish what marriage is. What is God's design in marriage? And this really is, is 101 kind of stuff. And I know it's, it's not going to undo years of difficulty in marriage. I know it isn't going to provide everything that you, you need to know. It's barely going to scratch the surface but for all of the young and even older married couples here and for the single people who hope to be married, I, I hope this morning this gives you a, a cornerstone to set the foundation of marriage and family straight and square. So Genesis two, eighteen through 25 And the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all of the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was found no helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, the Lord took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us, for blessing us with marriage and families and so many good things that you pour out on an undeserving people. And I pray this morning, Lord, that marriages would be strengthened, new marriages, old marriages, couples, families, that, Lord, breaches would be patched up and crumbling foundations would be restored. I pray, Lord, that though many of the things that Your Word says about marriage are hard, they are nevertheless necessary and wonderful. And so, Lord, I pray that You would be gracious this morning to us, Lord, that you would help me to preach and help us to hear and to believe your word about the marriage that you designed, what you have given through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Help us and help me. Amen. Well, what is marriage? And by that, I don't mean what are the theological roots of it or what does it represent. We know that marriage is a representation of Christ and his relationship to his bride, the church. And that's good and that's right. But in light of that, how should we think of marriage as an institution? What is it? What did God intend marriage to be? What is God's design for the relationship between a man and a woman? By the way, God is the one who created marriage. God did it belongs to him. He is the one who defines it, who designed it, who gets to tell us the conditions of it? You know for a long time, christians would uh, would argue that well, we have our view of marriage in the church, and, and the state or the civil authorities have have theirs, and nobody really thought too much about that distinction because everybody for the most part agreed about what marriage was, but now marriage is whatever anybody wants it to be. And people have taken a good gift from God and defined it on their own terms. Lord, you have given us this. You've brought it down to us, you've created it. But now we're going to take it and we're the ones who are going to make it whatever we want it to be. And it's it's been distorted so terribly that now uh, there's not only so-called same-sex marriage, but polygamy has returned. And polyamory, it's marriage between three people or more. Some people are marrying their pets, and some people are marrying inanimate objects. And you don't need to be a scholar to, to find this out, you just need a search engine. We know that none of that is actual marriage. And the reason we, we say that is because God is the one who made marriage, God sets the parameters, God decides, not us. And maybe you think at this point, that's going to be the focus of the rest of the message. What is the definition of marriage? No, we're actually going to go even more basic than that. Because there is a lot more confusion about marriage beyond who are the participants. We really don't know what it is and how God intended it to function for our well-being and for our comfort. Um, I was talking to Thomas about this this morning. When I sat down to prepare to preach this message, I thought it was going to be pretty straightforward stuff. And then when I finished, I thought, well, maybe, Corey, you should title this message, How Many People Can Corey Offend in the Next 40 Minutes? (laughs) When you look at what the Bible teaches about marriage, you learn pretty quickly and maybe surprisingly that our... Society and our culture misses almost all of it, and what they don't miss, they really don't like. So here we go. I have eight points, eight pillars under marriage that, that hold it up, that provide a foundation for the institution God designed. And now there may be, there may be more than eight, there may be less than eight, but we're going to look at eight of them this morning and see how much uh, trouble we can get into Because everything that I'm about to say, almost everything, goes 180 degrees against our social, cultural, and worldly view of marriage. And the first, the first is that marriage is a covenant. It's a binding commitment and a promise. That's what marriage is. But it isn't primarily made between two people, a husband and a wife. And it isn't primarily between two families or made in a community. Marriage, first and foremost, is a covenant that a husband and a wife make before God. It's a covenant with God. This is reflected in the traditional wedding vows um, because of how they're sometimes portrayed and you know, we really don't think much about marriage as a covenant between a husband and a wife and God, but between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, we, we really don't think very much about it being a covenant before God, and we don't realize exactly what is being said at a marriage ceremony. So uh, let me just read the first of the vows that are made. There, there are three sets of vows made in the traditional ceremony. Let me read the first, the one that comes before the I do's or the I will's. Okay, this is what they say. For the husband, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife, to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep yourself only to her so long as you both shall live? And the man answers, I will. Almost the same thing is said to the bride. Will you have this man to be your wedded husband, to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Will you obey him and serve him and love, honor, and keep him in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep yourself only to him, so long as you both shall live? And then she answers, I will. Now, who are they making these vows to? It isn't to each other, is it? That doesn't come until later. They, they, they repeat then, later, after the officiant, speaking face to face, holding hands, making their vows to one another. And they are similar vows, but this is different. Because the pastor or the priest who is officiating the wedding, they're the one asking these questions to the individuals, and in doing so are actually acting in uh, the place as God's representative in this ceremony. And when the bride or the groom say, I do they're actually saying it to the Lord God. These vows are made up of various portions of Scripture where God lays out what He commands husbands and wives to do. It's drawn from Genesis 2, from Ephesians 5, from 1 Corinthians 7 and 13, and a few other places. And when, when somebody says, I do, what they are saying is, I am covenanting with God to live in marriage according to His design and ordinance. Every marriage is a covenant with God before it is a covenant between husband and wife. That's number one. Number two, marriage is public, not private. Public, not private. And this kind of thinking really derails what we think of when we think, when we think of marriage. <clears throat> often marriage is talked about as uh, really a day for the bride, right? It's, it's her day. I, I don't like that kind of language because it's fundamentally untrue. Marriage isn't all about the bride or about the bride and the groom or about the couple. Now, sure, that's where the lights are, are focused. It's where the eyes are, are fixed. But that doesn't mean it's solely a private affair as just between two people, that they're all who is involved, they're all who are affected, they're all who really matter. health of the marriage is up to them, how they organize themselves, whether they remain together. It's all private. It's all up to the individuals. It's not a private matter. That kind of thinking is destroying families and destroying children and destroying society. Marriage is for the benefit of those involved. There are certainly private aspects to it. It's the most intimate relationship people can enter into. But it is also a civic matter for public good. Marriage and the family that comes from it is the foundation of any lasting society. It's how values and traditions are passed on. It's how the next generation comes into being. It's how families and communities continue. I mean, just think of the emphasis placed on the family in the Old Testament. Marriage and the children that come from it are how a people have an identity and have a future. So, marriage is a a social public good and it's to be respected and defended by the community. What do I mean? Well, have you ever wondered why we have such a thing as a marriage ceremony in the first place? Why not just find an officiant, grab a few witnesses, sometimes uh, you can go to a marriage website and find an officiant, and they'll say, and for a fee we'll provide some witnesses as well, if you don't have your own. But then you do that and sign the paperwork. That doesn't work. Marriage has a community aspect to it that's recognized in the ceremony and the reception. Why? Because it recognizes that the union is both good and necessary for society to continue. And the reason there is a ceremony, one of the reasons, is because the whole community, the families, the friends, everyone invited, has a responsibility to ensure the success of the marriage. So if the husband's eyes begin to wander or uh, the wife begins to consider moving on, She doesn't happy anymore, whatever it is. They begin to forget their vows that they made to one another. The groom, the groomsmen, or the bridesmaids, or the parents, or the friends, or the little old aunt you see only once every other year, but she was there at your wedding. When they hear about your wavering commitment, it is their responsibility... To come to you and to admonish you and to restrain you and remind you of the solemn oath you made before your spouse, before them, and most importantly, before God. Your marriage is their business. It's the business of everybody who witnesses it. There are a few passages you could look at about this, but we'll just take one by way of example. One that uh, really shows the community aspect of marriage, and that's the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2. So John 2 the wedding at Cana, just by way of example. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, Mary. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And then his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some water and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast... Called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. End of the passage on the wedding in Cana. Now, why is there such an elaborate celebration? You understand, in Jesus' day, wedding ceremonies and festivities, it was not uncommon for them to last seven days. A whole week of feasting. In fact. In this story, the reason why everybody is so concerned that the wine has run out is because it was a liability. If the host ran out of wine before the end of, uh, end of festivities, one of the laws in ancient Israel was that the guest could sue the host for being a bad host. Imagine if there were laws in place saying how you had to provide for your guests at your wedding. Law is telling you how you had to have your ceremony. I mean, you'd be aghast at such an intrusion into a a private matter. That's because we think about it very privately. But they understood it publicly. It was the expanding of the community. It was growth. It was a time for the whole community to come together and rejoice and something for them to recognize and to guard. It was much more than just a personal commitment to one another. Marriage is public. Number three, marriage is foundational. And I say this because sometimes we don't think of marriage as foundational, but as a a concluding kind of thing, even among Christians. What do you mean? I mean this. Marriage is viewed as what you do once you have firmly established yourself and your career is underway, you've planted your feet, and now as the capstone of your young adult life and as a as kind of a reward earned, you can begin to entertain the idea of getting married. It's the culmination of, of the young adult life. It, it comes at the end once everything else is accomplished. And that's certainly how we think about it. Before we would ever consider getting married, you must complete your education, you must have a, a, a solid career, you must be moving up the ladder... Maybe you have to have a home. All of these things. And then you cap off the well-lived young adult life with marriage and a family. Genesis 2 verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This verse is teaching that when a man leaves his father and mother and goes out and begins on his own, that is the moment for marriage to come along. God begins this passage by saying it's not good for a man to be alone. God expects people to marry. It's kind of the standard. And yes, there are some who don't, but it's a case of the exception that proves the rule. And in the Bible and in history, marriage was the foundation on which two people built a life together. And all of these milestones that someone would reach Graduation from post-secondary, start of a a career, promotions, advancement, having a a first home. It was all done together, man and wife holding fast to each other. It was uh, not uncommon. New couples would often go through a, a spell of poverty together, but it was done together. And the husband and wife could continue to rely on each other during these times. I mean, think of the vows, comfort, keep, help one another, or Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. And, and I know this is about friends in this passage, but what relationship is closer than that of a husband and a wife? It says, two are better than one, for they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone, and when he falls, has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. All of the hardships and difficulties that accompany young adulthood, and anybody in here who has endured it understands what I'm talking about, they're meant to be weathered together, not alone. Maybe you think, well, what about provision? Well, yes, that's part of it. A husband has to provide for his family. Uh, Paul tells us this in Timothy, reminds us of it. But in the past, really, it's been the the promise of provision that was reasonable to materialize in the near future. And because parents had been preparing and training their children for marriage, they were much better equipped in this regard. Uh, It was incredibly common, especially for men. The fathers would give them a piece of land, and, and they would start out on their own, but they would be granted an establishment Get them going. And we don't grant land in, in 2022, but the principle remains. Parents, you want to uh, have, uh, help your children build a foundation, not just for a career, but for the family, for the marriage that you hope comes uh, from them. Marriage is a foundation on which a couple's life is built, not the capstone of an already well lived life. Number four. <coughs> Number four, marriage is an exchange. Augustine had his exchange theory of marriage, and it isn't that popular, but nevertheless true. He says, essentially, men have something women want, women have something men want, and marriage is the socially acceptable God-ordained means, blessed by him of obtaining it. And so I, I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, by the way, this is part of the traditional marriage vows as well, to have and to hold. That's exactly what this phrase means. Marriage comes with conjugal rights, and there are other exchanges that happen. Belongings become shared, comfort is shared, love is shared, the two become one, everything they possess becomes the others. But this is something unique to the marriage relationship, and the clearest expression of this is in 1 Corinthians 7 2 through 5. 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5. Now, prior to this coming up, the Corinthians asked Paul a question. They say, Paul, it is good for a man not to to touch a woman. That's what they say. He refutes them. He says in verse 2, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, every man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband... "...should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband." Verse 4, "...for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer." but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. How should a young man or a young woman resist the temptation to sexual immorality when it is rampant in the land, which was the case in Corinth. Uh, there, are, there are records of marriages. Uh, some people would get married once a year, almost as a, as a tradition. And you can read about people who were divorced 27 times. Uh, So much immorality was rampant in Corinth. And Paul says, if you don't want to get sucked into this, each man should have his own wife and each wife should have her own husband. And they give conjugal rights to each other. Verse 4, which is uh, uh, totally out of step in our day, but is clear as clear can be in God's definition of marriage. If you are a married man you don't have authority over your own body. Your wife does. And if you're a married woman, you don't have authority over your own body. Your husband does. And I'm not interpreting. I'm just reading what it says. Verse 5 is a command. Do not deprive one another. And so if you think, well, maybe we should abstain from this, listen to the qualifications that Paul gives. He says, accept... Perhaps by agreement for a limited time in order to devote yourselves to prayer. So there's a, an excuse given in the Bible and it's surrounded by qualifications. And by the way, in the context of Corinth, you wonder why did, why did Paul write this? What was going on there? Um, they were very influenced by Greek thought and Platonic thought, obviously. They were Greek. And so they would believe that the material, the physical world is bad. And what was happening was all of the men were saying, well, we want, to be, we, want to be really, we want to be more spiritual. We want to be super spiritual. We want to be holier. And so they would totally ignore their wives because they wanted to devote themselves more fully to God. And so they were ignoring their conjugal duties to their wives, saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be really holy. That's what they were saying. And Paul says... Are you out of your minds? He says, no, that's not not how God designed it to be. You don't have the authority to do that. Husbands, your body is not your own. It belongs to your wife. Repeats it for the wife, just as true. And I know that uh, this passage in particular can make a lot of people very uncomfortable. Um, But it is what the Bible says. It is what 1 Corinthians 2 through 5 says. And it isn't difficult because it's hard to understand. It's difficult because it's hard to accept. And the reason I'm saying it so boldly and unapologetically, well, one, because it's God's Word, but two, there may be some marriages here that will be saved and preserved by hearing this. Because just like everything else that God commands, failure to do what He commands is not only sinful, but look at the end of verse 5. Pay attention to this. This is not something to just gloss over because we don't like it it opens up someone to the temptation of the devil I'm tempted to say one of the reasons for rampant idolatry and pornography and all of these things happening in in marriage to men and women it can be traced back to this very thing and so if you want to throw your spouse into a sea of temptation and make them susceptible to the seduction of Satan in this sexually charged immoral age, this is how you do it. So don't do it. And if you have, then don't go to your spouse first. Go to the Lord first because ultimately it's His command about His institution of marriage that's been ignored. disregarded. Go to the Lord about this and deal with it there. Number five, and this comes quite naturally from the last point marriage is procreative. That means it's expected to produce children. It's God's intention for marriage. Marriage is where children come from. And up until very recently, and (coughs) I mean recent, maybe a hundred years ago, it's a blink in human history. Nobody talked about how many children that they should have. It wasn't even a conversation that made sense because it wasn't any, something anybody had the ability to decide. Not only that, Adam and Eve were commanded to go and multiply and fill the earth, and the first married couple, they were commanded to have children. It, it wasn't up to them to decide how many kids they had uh, or if they would have children or not. And just to give you some of the history, and this is just fact, up until the 1930s, Uh, So the third decade of the 20th century, not a single organized representation of historic Christianity recognized any form of contraceptive as legitimate. Not one. And that's including Catholic and Orthodox and even liberal Protestant. And in a way, that makes sense that they didn't recognize it because there was no serious birth control available and they didn't have to wrestle with this until later on. But it does make you pause, doesn't it? Isn't it obvious that God intended marriage to produce offspring? Now a question every married couple asks at this point, does that mean we shouldn't limit how many children we have? Well, I'd say this, every Christian couple has to be open to having children. It's not a closed door unless the Lord closes it. Children are good. They're a blessing from the Lord. They are the intended result of the marriage union. And every Christian couple should, if the Lord plans for them, wills for them, if they're able, plan on raising a family. To, to refuse to do this and to say, I'm just not going to do it. Not for me. That would be clearly a violation of Scripture. But as to how many? Or should Christians use contraception? The Bible doesn't speak about that. Conclusively, in any kind of way and uh, I, I'm not the Pope and I'm not going to give an encyclical uh, banning contraception but the Christian couple has to take this question seriously. You know, nobody nobody comes to me and asks the question should I have more children? It's always the question should we not? Having children is never sus- viewed with suspicion in a marriage relationship, is it? It's what should we do now that we have in my case now that we have three in her pulling her hair out. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are things to there are things to consider. There are considerations. Um, kind of under the same point. Marriage is God's declaration. That children need a mother and a father. And if you're, you're taking notes, maybe you can make this 0.5 and a half. Children need a mom and a dad. And if one of those is taken away or replaced, children suffer. Having utterly dismantled the foundation of a stable society, which is the family... It is no wonder that so many people today are and would describe themselves as unstable mentally, uh, emotionally, economically, in all of these ways. Children need to be healthy, both a mother and a father. In fact, statistically, and listen, I don't say this to disparage single parents. I don't say this to disparage anybody. This is just statistics. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of runaways from fatherless homes. 71% of dropouts. 50% of people living in in, in poverty. 70% of those who are incarcerated or in prison are from fatherless homes. Statistically and naturally, children need a father and a mother. God designed it this way and it's it's tragic to see how our society prides itself on destroying children by celebrating sexual and marital chaos society's upending itself in the name of total sexual liberation and children are paying the price that's what we witness around us today statistics prove it number 6 marriage is enduring it's meant to last. What God has joined together, let not man separate. God is present in every marriage ceremony sealing the union. It's, it's governed by God. Why is this so important? Well, it's important because it means that marriage is not a legal matter. It's not. It's a creation ordinance. It's something that God himself founded in creation at the beginning. It's pre-political, pre-legal. It it comes before all of those things. And because God is the one who defines it and God is in charge of it, He gets to give the conditions for it. And one of those conditions is that marriage is binding. Except in the case of adultery or abandonment, which are only exceptions because God made them exceptions, divorce is not an option. In fact, even if you do it legally and legally get divorced, it isn't actually real. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Whoever divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, if they're divorced, how can it be adultery? That's easy. They aren't actually divorced. At least not in God's eyes. No matter what document or a court or a law or a legal status says God has joined them, and no human institution has the power to dissolve what God has done. They can recognize what God has done. They can affirm that a marriage is legitimate, but they cannot legitimize marriage and make it whatever they want it to be and say it's this or that. They don't have that authority, and so they can't terminate or rescind a marriage once it happens. God alone can do that. And he says, it's until death do you part. So if you divorce your spouse and marry someone else, in God's eyes, you're still married to your previous spouse and the new relationship is adultery. Now, that doesn't mean you divorce your current spouse and go back. That would be worse. But what it does mean is you really don't have a say. Once you're married, you're joined with another person by God. And that union is binding under normal circumstances until death because God has said so. Disagreement, irreconcilable differences, mutual desire to separate, spouse is difficult, not happy anymore. Whatever reason, they're just not legitimate reasons. So work it out. And don't entertain those thoughts. And don't think that sinning against God and doing something that he hates will somehow make your situation better. Number seven. Marriage is hard. And it is not coincidental that this comes after a warning against divorce. You know, the disciples when Jesus says this to them in Matthew 18, you know what their reaction is? Oh Lord, how could anybody get married if divorce is an option? <laughs> Marriage is not easy. And even though it was designed to be perfect, a perfectly a perfect union of completely complementarily designed individuals it isn't that anymore sin happened and so now you have two people who are the center of their own universes and they collide together in marriage it's like two solar systems that that are pushed together And there's going to be some wreckage. There's going to be some planets and asteroids collide. There's going to be some debris flying around and a lot of close calls as planets whiz by each other while a new system is formed. And we could spend the whole morning and probably then some looking at the challenges that married life brings, but I want to look at two in particular, two that are unique to the marriage relationship because... I don't know if you know this or not, but marriage, the relationship of marriage is actually cursed. It's actually cursed. It's a blessing, but it's cursed. Um, In the same way that work, which is good, you remember in in Genesis 3, God cursed Adam's labor. He still had to work. Work was still good, but now it was going to be hard. Child, uh, Childbearing. It's good. God wanted them to do it, but now it's going to be hard marriage It's good, God gave it, but now it's going to be hard. How? Genesis 3, verse 16, end of the verse. So this is after the fall, God has cursed the snake, the woman, and the man. Listen to this curse, which applies directly to the marriage relationship. It says, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. The ESV has your desire shall be contrary to your husband. It was added in a, in a later edition. It shouldn't be there. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Part of the curse is that the enjoyable, perfect, caring, loving union that God made between a husband and wife is marred. God put something there because of sin. Now, it doesn't make marriage wrong or marriage sinful, but God withdrew some of the blessedness of it. And now, husbands and wives will face unique challenges in their marriages. But marriage is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And the first, there, there are two here. The first is that the woman's desire will be for her husband. Now, what does that mean? Now, it's easy to read this and think, well, that means she will really be for her husband and she'll love him so much and, and her desires will be for him, but he won't appreciate it, like, it sh- like he should. That happens. And that's often what this passage is assumed to mean, but it isn't. That's not what the word desire implies. And if you want to define it, then the next chapter of Genesis does that. It's a story of Cain and Abel. God accepts Abel's sacrifice. God rejects Cain's sacrifice. Cain is contemplating, he's thinking about killing Abel, his brother, and then God confronts him and he warns Cain with almost an identical phrase. He says, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Same language as Genesis 3.16. And so we see that In this context, the word desire means to control or to master. Right? That's what God is telling Cain. Sin wants to control you. Sin wants to master you and make you do its will by killing your brother Abel. But you have to rule over it and resist it. So what's the curse? Eve was made, designed... To be a perfect helper to Adam in completing the work that God gave him. But because of sin, now she will want to be the master and the leader and the one who is in charge. Her desire will be to rule her husband, completely contrary to the way God designed her to be. And for the man, he will rule over her. And the word is the same thing Cain is told to deal with when he's dealing with the sin. To rule it. In the context, it's not a, a gentle thing. It's harsh. And so the curse is that Adam, the man, he will no longer cherish and love her and selflessly lead her like he ought, but he is going to rule. He will be selfish, selfishness, and expect her service and make no sacrifice for her. And you see this, don't you? The, these two sins plague marriages. Women want to Uh, take dominion over their husbands and husbands are selfish and want to use their authority for their own personal interests. This is not an isolated instance. This is universal. It's a curse given in the same line as childbearing. Now, just as some births are relatively pain-free, relatively, some marriages don't struggle with this to the same extent. But they all struggle with it to some extent. And so the question is not, is this something, married couple, that you struggle with? It's safe to assume everybody is is resisting and combating in these areas. The question is, what are you doing to put these sins to death? How are you restraining them? And if the answer is, well, I'm not, well, then you can be sure, husband or wife, (laughs) you can be sure your husband or wife is suffering on account of it. This is a a curse on marriage that has to be withstood and resisted. Eight, marriage is a blessing. It really is a blessing. It is not good for man to be alone. Proverbs 18.22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Marriage is a blessing. It's a gift from God for our mutual comfort and help to strengthen our endurance, to provide encouragement and stability in life, to bring companionship to the closest uh, and most intimate of relationships. And it is one of God's most used means of making us like Christ. Uh, In fact, Luther called marriage the school of character. How many people, when they got married, they used to think, I'm a pretty selfless, loving, caring person? And after you get married, you find out that wasn't quite the case. (laughs) Marriage has drawn out sin in order to make you more like Christ. Kind of pressing you into a mold of Christ-likeness. Marriage does that. Not only that, it, it wards off the dread of loneliness. It's a terrible thing to be alone. God Himself says so. It is not good to be alone. Proverbs, the man who isolates himself... It's not wise. It provides stability. Marriage provides stability. You ought to be able to say that no matter what, whatever difficulties come, my spouse isn't going anywhere. We're secure. That's a quality all in its own. Like we read in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one. Marriage is. Marriage is the, uh, the relationship that produces children and the family, which are a blessing all on their own. And everything that the husband or wife lacks, they make up for in the other. They do it by nature of God's design. For everyone in this room, and I think it's certainly because of a flaw in us, we always, and we do, we, we tend to think about wrongs suffered or offenses or bad things or negative things far more than the blessed things. But I suspect if you were to sit down and write all of the blessings, to actually put your mind to it and think of all of the blessings that you have received in your marriage that have come from it, they would outweigh the challenges by far, if we're being honest. Marriage is a blessing in many ways. And I would encourage you to count those blessings and then thank God for them and then thank your spouse for them and treat one another like a blessing. It's what God has designed and done for your good. And if you wonder why a sermon on marriage is in the middle of a series on keeping in step with the Spirit, the answer is really simple. Because if you want your marriage to be healthy and godly and blessed... The single most important thing that you can do is keep in step with the Spirit. And this series that we are in the middle of, will do more for your marriage than any amount of uh, marriage counseling. I mean, things like how to love. The love that uh, Christ has shown us as an example for us to follow. What is forgiveness and how to forgive and how much have I been forgiven? living and walking in the power of the Spirit, the the danger of being angry and how to identify selfish or sinful anger. Things like joy, peace, and long-suffering, the motivation for kindness, goodness, and uh, gentleness, the importance of faithfulness and of self-control. What would a marriage look like if it was a tree filled with the fruit of the Spirit? What would a marriage look like if you could say of the spouses, of the husband and wife, they are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Two people characterized by those things, what would that marriage look like? It would be the happiest marriage on the face of the earth. That's what we ought to strive for and pray for. Treat each other like Christ has treated us. Now, if you're struggling and you need help in your marriage, then please talk to myself or uh, one of the other elders or maybe a few of the elders. Marriage is a blessing. It's there and it's for the the Christian submitted to God. If you are a Christian and you want to serve the Lord, there is always hope of reconciliation. And so if you are here this morning and your, your marriage is in a difficult place, the church is here for you and it supports you, and we want to see your marriage strong and flourishing. We want to see your children do well. That's one of the jobs that the church does for your own health. Speak to one of us here. We're not going to judge you for it. We want to see you do well. And for anybody here who maybe you were married and things did not work out the way that you expected Nobody goes into marriage expecting it to go poorly. But it just didn't play out how you thought. She wasn't who you thought she was. He wasn't who you thought he was. And you look around and it just looks like a mess. In Joel, one of the promises God gives is he can restore the years that the locusts ate. What he means by that is, yes, difficult times come, but the Lord can restore those things. He can heal those wounds. He can reconcile those relationships if you're willing. And, and He is willing and ready to forgive any wrong that may have happened in that marriage. And you say, I committed adultery. God is willing to forgive you if you come to Him. You say, I was a horrible, horrible man and I drove my spouse away. God will forgive you if you come to him. You say I I had an abortion. It just wasn't ready. God is a forgiving God. He doesn't command his people to treat one another with love, joy, peace and patience and all of those things and then turn around and not do the same to his people. He delights to forgive. And he'll forgive any sin you've ever committed any marital sin that's ever been carried out if you come to Him. And you can have the guilt or the shame washed away and made as white as snow in Christ. Again, all of the elders in this church would be happy to come and speak to you uh, about any of these things that are troubling you. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for marriage. Help us to believe it is a blessing. Help us as Christians to see it as you have established it and to walk in your ways, Lord. And even though it is 180 degrees against what the world around us thinks about marriage, Lord, the world around us is not a good example of what a good marriage should be. Marriage in the world around us is in ruins. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not find any of that advice attractive. But turn to the advice of Your Word, which is perfect and for our good eternally, for our good temporally, good for our families and good for our souls and ourselves. Lord, And I pray that we would Difficult as these things may be, yield to You and to Your Word. There is joy found there. There is hope and reconciliation in You. And so, Lord, I want to pray for marriages that are struggling. I pray that You would give those husbands and wives the humility to seek out help Lord, marriage is hard and we all know it and we don't have to pretend that ours is any different. And so I pray for those who are struggling. The church is here to help. And I pray, Lord, for those whose marriages have fallen apart and there's nothing that they can do. Or for their children, Lord. I pray that the church would provide all that is lacking for those children, Lord. That men would be men and help to be father figures in their lives and I pray for those who are divorced and looking back they say it wasn't right Lord you came to forgive and I pray that you would cleanse their conscience and make them whole Lord purity does not make people pure and Living a sinless life does not make people sinless. Christ alone makes people pure. And Christ alone makes people sinless. And so I pray that they would look to you to be restored. And even if the marriage never is reconciled, they can have peace with you through Jesus Christ. I pray that they would find it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.